Welcome to Alchemy, the home of the open mind. I very much hope you enjoy the eye and ear opening array of guests that we bring to you on as regular a basis as possible. And thank you to all of you who do make that possible. It's through your very generous donations that we manage to keep the show advertising free and in its current format without interruption. So anybody who has donated in the past while, it's very, very much appreciated. The simple fact of the matter is due to bandwidth costs and the expense of hosting the shows, any and all donations go immediately back into providing more episodes. So if there are a dearth of episodes, it's generally due to a dearth of funds and vice versa. If you can donate at all, as I often say, even the price of a cup of coffee goes a long, long way and helps towards keeping us afloat. So then, let's get to it. On to the show. Alchemy. 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 My guest this episode is somebody I'm very excited to be speaking to. He's a co-author of a book called The Contagion Myth, Why Viruses, Including Coronavirus, Are Not the Cause of Disease, which is one of the most mind-blowing books that I have read in quite some time. His name is Dr. Tom Cowan, and Tom attended Duke University, graduating with a degree in biology. He then served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Swaziland in Africa from 1977 to 1980, teaching gardening in a secondary school. It was in Swaziland where he encountered the work of Weston Price and Rudolf Steiner, two of the greatest influences on his career. After the Peace Corps, he attended medical school in his home state of Michigan in the Michigan State College of Human Medicine, and after graduating in 1984, he did an internship and family practice in Johnson City, New York. From 1985 until the present day, Dr. Cowan has had a general medical practice, first in upstate New York, then for 17 years in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and finally for the past 17 years in San Francisco. During these years, he served as vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine. He was a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation and currently serves as vice president and has given countless lectures and workshops throughout the U.S. about a variety of subjects in health and medicine. He's the author of five books, four of the books spent time on the Amazon bestsellers list and each was ranked number one in their respective categories often for many months in the last few years he's two businesses along with his wife and two sons the first Dr. Cowan's Garden sells high quality vegetable powders the second humanheartcosmicheart.com distributes information hosts his popular webinar series and sells many of the products he uses in his practice Tom it's fantastic to welcome you to Alchemy how are things? I'm good, and thank you for having me on your show. It's a huge pleasure, and I've been very much looking forward to this. I've read your book, The Contagion Myth, Why Viruses, Including Coronavirus, Are Not the Cause of Disease, which, of course, you have done with Sally fallon Morell. But before we plough into the material in the book, Tom, I have a question that I ask every first-time guest on the show, and that's how did you get from where you were to where you are now? You know, where I was uh, when I was 15 was kind of doubting Thomas, and I didn't believe my, a lot of my father's friends were doctors, and I basically didn't believe many of them <laughs> about anything. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, it just, it just, I just kind of followed my nose, and I 
I didn't believe things because people told me they were true or I should believe them. And I just had to figure things out for myself. And one thing led to another. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I can tell you when I look back and all the books and all the things I've written, and there are definitely some things that I write that I would read now and I would cringe that I said that. But, but basically every single one was I believed the dominant narrative too much or I didn't want to tackle that subject at that time. And I had some sense in me that, you know, I don't think that's quite right, <laughs> but, but I couldn't prove it and I couldn't sort of wait and... So I just kind of went with it at the time. And there's even a few in this in the current book, which even six months later, I think, I don't think it's quite like that. But uh, I mean, that's just the way life is. You know, you just keep moving forward. Otherwise, you're you might as well pack it in. I couldn't agree more and it's all part of the adventure and the journey and the learning process. But the thing that interests me most is as a medical doctor, You've really taken an unconventional route as your life has unfolded. And a lot of what you talk about and a lot of what you've practiced in your career would seemingly be the antithesis of what we know allopathic medicine to be today. So how did that come about and what kind of pushback did you get as you started to kind of forge your own path rather than just go down the path most trodden? I mean, it's kind of the same thing. It just, uh, it didn't make any sense. People never got better. Uh, we made them sick. And then, you know, when when I first year of residency, I had the experience. I, I already knew that vaccines weren't good, but um, we had a child in our clinic who, uh, we gave him a DPT shot and the next couple days later, the child died. And the two things that that really struck me about that was, was number one, that we denied that it had any connection, even though we all knew it did. And then number two, we lied to the parents and told them it didn't have a connection when we knew it did. And number three is we didn't report that, uh, which is basically illegal. Uh, but it also taught me that the statistics about, for instance, vaccines are, are total you know, make-believe because, you know, there was a clear case and we just said the baby died of SIDS, whatever that is, and that was the end of it. And so I, I basically refused to uh, vaccinate any children. And so then I left, the, you know, my, my training as soon as I could uh, because I didn't want to participate in that. So that's almost 40 years ago. Um, so as they say, it went downhill from there. <laughs> uh, but I, as time went on, I just saw more and more of it just didn't work and made people sick. And uh, I just couldn't have anything to do with it. I'm somebody who grew up in Ireland where vaccination, it, while it's, it's not as stringent a program for children as it would be in the United States of America, but there are vaccinations nonetheless and many of them at an early age. Once you started to notice vaccine injuries, for want of a better term, how did your colleagues and your fellow professionals react to you kind of exposing this or starting to freely talk about it? I mean, I never had that much to do with most medical you know, doctors. In fact, I had almost nothing to do with them. I had my own clinic and I had my friends and 
you know, we just left each other alone. So I, I didn't have anything to do with them. They didn't have anything to do with me. I, I could care less, frankly, and they probably could care less about me. It must have been the case then that your patients were getting all kinds of diseases, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, etc. Or what was your experience over the course of kind of 40 years? Uh, so as far as I remember, in, in you know, about 37 years of a, a pretty, you know, no, sort of active general practice with lots of children, I remember giving about five plain tetanus shots. And by the way, I regret every one of those. So if anybody out there who I gave one of them, I apologize because I didn't know any better. Um, but so I saw lots of children with all those kind of diseases, not polio, but um, I saw hundreds, maybe thousands. And as far as I know, there was never a bad outcome. I mean, I saw thousands of children with chicken pox and whooping cough and all that. And a lot of them never even came in. You know, they just called me on the phone and, oh, my child has chicken pox, fine, see in a, you know, if anything happens and nothing happened. So again, as far as I know, in 40 years, I, I don't remember a bad outcome. Yet we have seen so many bad outcomes when it comes to vaccination, haven't we? I mean, they basically poison people. So yes, you get a lot of, I mean, basically they they convert harmless detoxification processes into uh chronic disease. And so now we have something like 54% of the children in the United States have a di at least one diagnosis of a chronic disease. And it's not entirely due to vaccines, but a lot of it is. And it's for very clear biological reasons that are easily understood if somebody actually wants to, but of course they don't want to, so they don't see it. Well, I think there'll be many of our listeners who would love to. So can we go into some of these reasons? Because you touch on a lot of them in the book, The Contagion Myth, Tom. And I would like to delve into the subject matter therein. So can you give us some examples of that? Or what are we dealing with exactly with vaccination? I mean, the, the real question is, what are we dealing with with illness? And the, the place that I start is, if you get a splinter in your finger and you don't take it out, you, you, your body makes pus. And then I asked, used to ask patients, is the pus the therapy or the disease? And of course, any rational person would say the pus is the therapy and the splinter is the illness. Mm -hmm. And so the body is using pus as a therapeutic maneuver. And that one is obvious. Uh, so here's another one. You put debris into your lungs, otherwise known as smoking. Now we, you know, we inhale debris that's sprayed in the air. And then you do the same thing. You make a fever and cough because uh, this debris gets into the, essentially the cellular or the tissue fluid, which is a gel. And then you have to liquefy the gel. So you dissolve the gel with heat and then you make mucus to flush it out. So that, that process, which we call being sick, otherwise known as bronchitis, is actually the cleansing process for the debris that you inhaled, or even could be metabolically generated, whatever toxins there are. 
So we use what we call erroneously sickness to, to you know, help our body cleanse itself. The problem is if you don't understand that, which essentially no medical doctors do, they have a, essentially what amounts to a war on the cleansing process. So naturally then, you get more and more splinters in your lungs, and it's more and more irritating, and then you end up with chronic lungitis, which otherwise known as asthma or then COPD or something, and then you build up so many toxic debris in your lungs that you sequester that in containers called cells, and that's what we call lung cancer. And so the whole process is very simple to see. It has nothing to do with any kind of infection. It has to do with the buildup of toxic stuff. The bacteria come to try to help you by eating the debris, just like they do in nature. But unfortunately, we don't see that and understand that, so we kill the bacteria. The debris builds up more and more, and then we're chronically sick. It sounds a little bit like people driving by a burning house and they see the firefighters gathered around the house and blaming the firefighters for the fire. Right, or maggots on a dead dog and think the maggots killed the dog. If we lived in a world without bacteria, uh, nothing would be able to regenerate. You know, you could imagine a forest and you cut down trees and then you say, oh, the forest has a bacterial infection, so I'm going to kill all the bacteria in the soil and the fungus because it also has a fungal infection and then all the trees would pile up and a few years later the forest would be dead as would we if we have a war on microbes. So am I correct in surmising Tom that what you're saying is that our body heals itself provided we give it whatever it needs to do that and we don't necessarily need this outside intervention in the way that we currently perceive it to make us better? We almost never need this outside intervention that's supposedly to make us better. There will have to be people listening to us saying, no, for God's sake, come on, doctors haven't come from nowhere. My doctor made me better. I had antibiotics and it cured an infection and I had this, that and the other and doctors were great. What happens with that? Imagine you you have... Um, for instance, you put metal in your mouth, sort of toxic mercury, mm-hmm. and that it essentially poisoned your tonsils. So now you have this dead and diseased tissue called, uh, you know, in your tonsils. And then the body says, we need to uh, remodel this and get rid of this dead and, and diseased tissue. And so the strep bacteria that are always there, you can prove that, um, they come to help to digest the tissue. Now, what you're talking about is the symptoms like pain and fever and all, they come when the bacteria are doing their, their crucial job. So you can, in fact, kill the bacteria, and that will stop the process, and you will think you're better. But there has been absolutely definitive research showing that every time you do that, you're in, you increase your risk of a whole variety of chronic diseases like cancer by, you know, somewhere between three and then up to 20% every time you do something like that. Because now what's going to happen to that dead and d- diseased tissue called tonsils? 
It just acts like a chronic poison. And so you may think you're better and your symptoms may be better, but the process that led to that is still there. And that's the problem. So disease is essentially toxicity. And if we don't remove the root cause of it, we will continue to be sick. Is that what we're saying? You, there's essentially four reasons. I used to think there was three reasons people got sick, but the, the, my, in the last six months, I've, I've reluctantly, I would say, added a fourth reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to say people get sick because of injuries, like they fall off a horse, right, and they break their leg. They get sick because they're starving. You know, they have scurvy or because they, they don't eat, they don't have vitamin C or they don't have fats, so they can't make proper, you know, tissues, uh, etc. Whenever you're starving of, of some nutrient, you're at risk for getting sick. But then the predominant one is you're poisoned, and you could be poisoned from emotions or, or, or EMFs or. Uh, arsenic or glyphosate or whole, you know, that where the the world right now is very creative in its ability to poison people, and so that's the predominant reason we get sick. And as I said lately, I added a fourth, which is what I call being delusional, uh, and that's a really bad sickness because if you think irrational, delusional thoughts, that. Uh, has a seeming seems to me that it makes you get sick more easily. And so that's a really big category right now, people who are basically delusional. And delusion goes hand in hand quite often with fear, especially when mixed in the pot that is the mainstream media. So we seem to have a real uh, a kind of an epidemic of that at the moment. So what is the role then of fear regarding the health of our mind and our body and how we potentially poison it, Tom? Well, there's some interesting research on fear, uh, which actually gets into the whole viral theor- uh, theory, which is uh, when viruses were first discovered, they, they were postulated for a long time. Virus just means poison. And when they started the germ theory, they they said every disease is is caused by a certain microbe. And then they found, like with anthrax and with strep, they found a bacteria. And they said, just like you said, just because a bacteria is there doesn't mean it's the cause any more than because firemen are at a fire, they're caused the fire. So they did what you would think they would do, which is that they would isolate the bacteria And then they would give that to healthy people or healthy animals, and none of them got sick. And so they essentially disproved that it's the bacteria. So then they moved on and said, well, there's some diseases, polio was a prominent one, that we can't find a bacteria. So there must be something smaller than we can see that must be causing uh, these animals or people to get sick. And so they called it a virus, meaning poison. Now, they couldn't see it, but they just said it must be there because we know that germs cause disease. And then they uh, essentially said they proved that polio was caused by this unseen germ. And it's interesting to hear how they proved that polio was caused by a virus. If you want, I can share that with you. Yeah, please do. So basically... 
the first thing is we have to understand how you prove that something causes something else, which is if you want to prove that a fork uh, can, can, can pick up your potato, you can't get a handful of forks and spoons and knives and stab that into your potato to prove that the fork did it, right? You separate out the fork and you use only the fork and then you stick it in the potato and see if it works. In other words, you, if, if you want to prove that caffeine causes high blood pressure from coffee beans, you can't just have somebody eat coffee beans and see if their blood pressure goes up because there's a lot of things besides caffeine in a coffee uh, bean, right? You with me? Sure, yeah. So, so what they did was they took stuff, you know, it ground up people's brains who died, died of polio, uh, and they filtered it through a filter that got rid of the bacteria and some of the cellular debris, and it had all kinds of stuff in it, toxins and who knows what. And then they, inoc then they exposed a bunch of different animals to this stuff, and none of them got sick. Now, mind you, this is not purified virus, because they didn't know how to do that then. It was just stuff from somebody who was sick. So then they said, uh, you know, there was no animal model for polio, meaning they couldn't make an animal sick from the uh, polio stuff. And then somebody had a bright idea. This was in 1907. So he took uh, this unpurified liquid from ground-up polio brain uh, person, he filtered it, so he had, you know, a liquid polio mixture with uh, supposedly has the virus in it. He got two monkeys, drilled a hole in their brain, injected about a half a cup of this unpurified stuff in their brains, didn't do a control, so he didn't inject saline or water or something in, in another monkey to see what would happen if you just uh, inject a half a cup of anything in a monkey's brain. One monkey died, the other got paralyzed, and that proved that polio was caused by a virus. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not very convincing to me. No, me neither. I can see the holes in it immediately. <laughs> and you're not even a monkey with holes in your brain. <laughs> so how is this accepted as just being the, the standard then? Yeah, it's completely delusional, but, you know, that's the way it is. Okay, so there must have been some kind of vested interest at work then. I can only assume it's big pharma or the fact that if people are unwell, then they can be sold products. Or am I wide of the mark in that regard? I mean, it, it's a kind of, it, it, it's, it's, and to me, there, there is some of that, but it's, it's actually deeper than that. It's a kind of delusion. It's a delusion that we call science, which is we start with theory and then we look for facts to prove it. And that's not how normal human beings actually understand or at least should understand the world. We should look for facts that we can verify, hopefully by ourselves, and then maybe reconstruct a theory as to how those facts fit together. But these, guys, these people were, were sure that, the, that every disease is caused by a germ, they couldn't see a germ, therefore it had to be something they couldn't see, and so they they set out proving it. Interestingly, in 19, and I'll get to the fear question, 
Mm -hmm. uh, because in 1930, when they invented the electron microscope, and now supposedly they could see this virus, so they couldn't see it before, but now they could see it. Now, and so they did what you would expect, which was they uh, isolated the virus by grinding it up, filtering it, putting in a centrifuge, and then showing that all I have is this virus. And they exposed animals to it, and none of them got sick. And they did that for 20 years and essentially proved that these particles are not pathogens. In fact, what they are is they're cellular debris products, sometimes called exosomes, which whenever you have a toxic insult, any animal, they actually package up some of their genetic debris and excrete it as a mechanism of detoxification. And it's a communication strategy. And so they're not coming from the outside. They're not pathogens. They're a way that we, uh, we actually help ourselves heal. Now, interesting to get to your question, that's why I had to go for a long way. Uh, if you create fear in somebody, they increase their production of these uh, so-called viruses, which are actually endogenously produced, they're exosomes. And so in other words, fear like arsenic, DDT, you know, glyphosate, EMFs, etc., acts like a toxin. And then interestingly, it degrades your genetic material. And so then you're more likely to test positive on the meaningless PCR test. And so that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. See, you have a viral infection. And then the whole thing just becomes nonsense. You see, that to me speaks volumes as to how what's going on around us at the moment has been so successful as an operation. So tell me about the PCR testing and why that is not what we're led to believe. The whole ruse really does lie upon that, you know, the testing, the testing, the testing. Yeah, but the, 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 real, the whole ruse really lies around this concept of isolation. Because if you don't isolate the virus, then you can't say that this piece of genetic material came from a virus. It's just like, again, if I said, uh, so John, I want you to see if this, if this hoof piece, right, piece of a hoof, mm -hmm. uh, came from a unicorn. Right. Yeah. That's our job now. So so that's your job. And I find I go out to the field and I find a little piece of a hoof uh, and I and, and I give it to you and I say, OK, tell me whether this you're sure this came only from a unicorn. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, well, my first question would be, how do I know that it came from a unicorn? What does a unicorn hoof look like? Right. Or in other words, you would probably want to see a unicorn first. Well, yeah, for comparison. See whether it actually came. And then you might want to compare it to a horse and a cow and a sheep and a donkey and anything else. Absolutely. Because lots of things have hoofs. And we're saying that this could have only come from a unicorn. Um, and if I tell you, okay, John, you got to figure this out, but you cannot see a picture or a real unicorn. Now what do you do? Well, number one, I'm going to be entirely sceptical. I wouldn't necessarily take your word for it. So I'd say, Tom, I need to see some kind of proof that this is a unicorn hoof. No, but that's your job, is to find out if it's from a unicorn. 
Okay, so if I have to find out, I'm going to have to be able to get some sort of material from a unicorn that I can compare it to. So is there DNA from a unicorn out there that I can test this against? No. Okay, I'm in a spot of bother then. Yeah. So here's what the original paper that came up with the PCR primers, that's what they're testing for. Yeah. Uh, It's a paper by Christian Drosten and others. Uh, So here's what he said, and I'm quoting now. We aim to develop and deploy robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratories without having virus material available. So in other words, he was saying that we're looking for uh, segments of 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 the RNA, the genetic material of this coronavirus, but we but when they asked him do you have a copy of the of the of the genome of the virus they said we have an in silico copy of it do you know what in silico means no it means theoretical do you know what another word for theoretical is well made up imagined imaginary or otherwise known as make believe so they've got no unicorn they got no unicorn. And then they said, uh, do we, so we don't have virus material available, none. And so when they said, well, what kind of virus did you compare this piece of the virus to? They said an in silico virus. And you already know what that means. Yeah. So they have a theoretical genome of a theoretical virus that's compared to the first SARS virus from 2003 which was itself an in silico genome of an in silico virus. And then it goes back and back and back. Now, here's what the American CDC says, and this is in July 2020, quote, no quantified virus isolates of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are currently available. In other words, we've never seen this virus. Now. If you think about it, if you're supposed to make a test that says this proves that this virus is present, but you've never actually seen the virus or the genome, you just made it up in a computer model. So I could show you a picture of a unicorn, right, on the computer. Yeah. Uh, But I don't know about you, but that wouldn't convince me that unicorns are real. No, me neither. Uh, so that's what they did, and then they they find you know pieces of degraded uh, genetic material. They say they're they could only be from the virus. Now let's talk about that for a minute because they say here's this genetic sequence of the so-called spike protein, right? You've heard about that. Yeah. So they say that is only from a coronavirus. And so if I test for the presence of this genetic sequence that we think is the spike protein and we find it, that means, obviously, there must be the virus. So this guy named Ian Smith, he think he's British, he actually did what's called a blast search. That means every genetic sequence in humans and microbes has actually been published, right? So you can say... Here's the sequence, G, C, A, T, whatever it is. So that's the sequence for the blast, uh, for the spike protein. It's called ORF2 or something like that. And it's not the exact name, but it's something. So he put that sequence in, 
he found exactly 100 human segments which are identical. And then he did it for microbes and found 91 microbes, not coronaviruses, but bacteria and fungus that have that exact sequence. In other words, this piece of a hoof, there's a hundred different types of, of, of horses and sheep and monkeys. They don't have hoofs, but you know what I mean. Yeah. That all have the same type of material making up their hoof. Because viruses, because they come from us, have the same kind of genetic material as we have. So you actually can't tell the difference. So I can't emphasize enough, there are no false positive PCR tests. There are no false negative PCR tests. There are only false PCR tests. And in, for those who don't believe me, here is what uh, one of the biggest manufacturers of the PCR tests, uh, which is a pharmaceutical company called Roach, Here's what it says in the package insert for the PCR test for coronavirus. And I'll quote, these assays are not intended for use as an aid in the diagnosis of coronavirus infection. And you read that and you think, <laughs> wait a minute, you mean to say you can't use this test to diagnose a coronavirus infection? And the FDA says, positive tests do not rule out bacterial infection or co-infection with other viruses. The agent detected may not be the cause of the disease. The founder of the test said, you cannot use this test to find a new virus. You cannot use this test as a diagnostic tool. It's a manufacturing device to make more uh, genetic material, period. So the test isn't even a test. Far from being fit for purpose, it's not even a test. It's not a test. It's a manufacturing tool to make genetic material. And so you can, you can find a piece of anything and you can amplify it. And then if you turn it up to 40 cycles, everybody will have that, psych, that, that piece almost. And if you turn it down to 30, almost nobody will have that piece. And so if you want to say there's more infections in Ireland or France or whatever, you just set the PCR cycles to 40, 40 cycles, which means you find it more. And then if you want to say, you know, will everybody put on masks and then you do another test and you set the cycles to 30, everybody will test negative and you can say that the thing worked, whatever it is. And nothing did anything. It's just that you changed how much you look for a piece of genetic material which you have no idea where that uh, genetic material came from and the thing that's so interesting about this is the the authors of the six leading papers who claimed isolation the canadian government the british government the australian government and i think four or five other commonwealth countries the CDC, Christian Drosten, all have admitted in writing that they have no copies or no examples of an isolated virus. 100%. They all admit it. But it's interesting because you could literally get on the television now and say, you know, somebody like 
I don't know, Fauci or something, and say, people, we made this up. And they still wouldn't believe you. Well, that's a very interesting point, Tom, because I see that in my daily life. I'll find an article or I'll go to the CDC website or the NHS in the UK or wherever it might be. And you'll point out these facts that they are openly admitting. Now, they may be buried pages into their website, but they they are openly admitting all of this, be it for insurance reasons or whatever. And you can literally show somebody the facts and the cognitive dissonance is so strong that not only will the fact be denied, that you'll be embroiled in a fight with that person who will defend their position. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I remember this uh, doctor who was dying of cancer and it was a situation where it was likely that he could be helped by, you know, doing some detoxification and other things like that. And uh, eventually he was asked, what do you think about doing this? And he said, uh, no, because I spent my whole life thinking a certain way and I cannot give that up. So he'd rather die, which I, fair enough. I mean, that's his choice. That's essentially what people are saying now. They would rather, they have a certain point of view and that's where they get their life's meaning and whatever actual facts there are, have no relevance to what they think. No relevance at all. And that's the delusion you're talking about. Yes. And so, you know, I came to the conclusion, one of the reasons I stopped practicing medicine, I mean, mostly people like that don't come to me, but, but, but the problem is I couldn't help somebody like that. No matter what I tried to do, they were determined to think in a certain way, which created a certain kind of health situation, which was totally resistant to any intervention. Hmm. And so I, I don't like to fail. Uh, so I essentially said, I can't help you. And I couldn't. And unfortunately, it's probably like 98 or so percent of the population is, uh, is sort of incurable. I don't know what the percentage. I just made that up, but it's not. It's not like a few percent. It's a lot. It's incredible to see in our lifetime happening right in front of us on a local level, not just a global scale, but a local level. And it kind of brings me on to something that I'm. I'm very interested in, and there's a great section in the book about it. That's electricity disease. And then potential links to that dirty word 5G that nobody seems to want to talk about. Can you take us through kind of a, a potted version of that, Tom? And what, what is the effect of electricity on the body? What are these pandemics that we have had throughout history and certainly over the last 150 years? And how could they be linked perhaps to EMFs and electromagnetic frequencies? I mean, the way that I go into that is I say... You know, so we have this observation that people are getting sick because even though uh, most of it is just the usual sickness, there is something that's uh, that clearly seems new to me um, and a bunch of other doctors that I talk to. And it's basically hypoxia and an intense inflammatory reaction. Now, the, the way to think of this is human beings and all living beings are electrical beings. And even though that's controversial to doctors, 
then I, I, would ha I would have a hard time explaining why we do things like EKGs and EEGs, which measure the electrical activity of our heart and nervous system, if we're not electrical beings, because yeah. <laughs> it seems pretty clear evidence. So the, the electrical input that we have and have had for a long time is from the earth and the sun and other animals and plants and human beings and uh, what emanates from the palm of your hand and it interacts with water to create a charge. And all of those that I just mentioned are non-pulsed, broad-spectrum electromagnetic fields. So if you do a meter reading, there's lots of different uh, frequencies and they're not in a pulse, they're in a sort of continuous flow. Now, in order to harvest electricity to make it functional, and you can think about this like with a radio, you can't just, you can't make a radio and tune it to just frequencies, right? Because you have to tune it to 98.6 or some number. And in order to do that, you have to make pulsed single frequencies. And that's how, that's how you get the radio to work. It tunes into that frequency. The problem is living things have never been exposed to those kind of pulsed single frequencies. So they, they roll out radio waves and then a lot of people get sick because we've never experienced that. But then they make these uh, detoxification exosomes, otherwise known as viruses, and we adapt. And then they make stronger and stronger single-frequency single pulsed uh, frequencies, and then we get sick again and again. And then finally, they get to the most intense. And the reason why it's intense is because they're going to attempt to run about a trillion devices or more off of this one frequency, which is not a frequency, but it's a combination of short millimeter waves. And so that's more intense and more pulsed and than any other frequency has ever been. It's essentially like putting you putting a living being in a microwave, which of course works by uh, heating up your water. So when you put a human being in a microwave, it heats up their water. It it interferes with the oxygen in the atmosphere. It interferes with your ability to use oxygen and make food. And because you heat up the the water in your tissues, you get what's called an inflammatory response. That's what inflammation is, is a heated up tissue. And those are all the things that you see in this so-called COVID-19. And so it's very likely that, um, you know, the, the new part of this disease. And here you have another factor which is entirely controllable. So you want to control the number of cases, you just change the PCR cycles. Mm -hmm. You want to change how many people are getting sick with this, quote, new disease, you just turn up the 5G frequency. So that that is a new phenomenon in human history, not entirely new, but but to have complete control over the diagnosis and the cause of the illness that's a lot of power in certain people's hands. 
It really is. And considering it's the same people who will openly tell us that PCR tests, which they're relying upon to essentially shut down the world, are not fit for purpose, that doesn't inspire me with a whole lot of confidence. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. It doesn't, I mean, it's just nonsense, basically. What then do you think is the solution on either a personal level or the level of humanity, Tom? I think we're certainly in agreement that there are some potentially rough times ahead and we've only seen the tip of the iceberg of what's potentially to come. But how do you see the future panning out and what can people do to, I suppose, take personal responsibility for their own health and to mitigate some of the negative factors, toxins, poisons that we seem to be just surrounded by and are ubiquitous at the moment in our environments? I mean... The practical answer to that is, you know, you could read our book and we outline a lot of those. Uh, but the real answer, as I, you know, spoken about this and, you know, I've spoken about this more than I can even care to uh, relate. Uh, I'm more and more convinced that, you know, telling people to eat good food and that's fine and and breathe clean air and, you know, that's fine too, except you can't really, mm. and, and not have uh, wireless devices like I don't have a wireless device. I don't have a f- cell phone or a tablet or anything. Um, you know, you can do that. But the real thing is people are under a spell. And it's, that's why I put the story of Sleeping Beauty where the, the witch of materialism put the princess under a spell and then she fell down asleep and the country went into lockdown. And uh, nobody could rescue the princess because she, the castle was engulfed in toxic thorns. Hmm. And then came the solution, which actually immediately fixed the problem. Uh, a prince heard about it and he said, I can, I can go and rescue the princess in the kingdom and they said no the thorns are going to swallow you up and kill you and we don't want that and he said no i'm not afraid i can do this and because he had no fear in his heart the thorns had no um no no effect on him they had no hold on him so he just walked in and solved the problem and that was the end of it so it's really all about that if you're afraid uh, then you're sunk. It reminds me a little bit of maybe, you know, a, a Buddhist monk who can walk across hot coals and with just the power of his mind, he can seemingly change the physical reality of what's around him. Whereas if I walked over those hot coals, I'd be so afraid of getting burned that I would be burned to the proverbial cinder. It's that concept that you're talking about. It's, it's almost a philosophical concept and a philosophical solution to what on the surface appears to be a biological problem but it's all intrinsically linked isn't it our biology is linked to everything that's out there out with and within and there's no escaping that no matter what we're what spell we're put under or what we're led to believe yeah i mean we're we're you know from a physics standpoint we're simply either condensed uh, energy or were waves, which are no physical matter at all. And so insofar as you connect with the wave nature of reality, which is the reality, I mean, that's what physics tells us, hmm. then 
Right. You you won't be burned. And it's, you know, interestingly, a lot, you could say that this is about the quest for immortality because certain people called transhumanists want to download our mind into a computer so that we live forever. The reality, though, is if is you don't need a computer to do that because you already live forever. It's just not in this same form. But the only part of you that actually means anything is already immortal. So there's no point in looking for the road to immortality because you already have it. That's very, very interesting. And it's something that resonates extremely strongly with me. It's almost like the transhumanist agenda is trying to replicate what we already have in nature. And as we know, there's no lie in nature, but it seems that everything in the alternate reality that is being created is a bastardization of nature. And to me, our journey continues after we, we leave this mortal body, if you like. I can't prove it a bit like the unicorn, but it's something that resonates very strongly within me that I can't necessarily describe. But it's almost like the powers that shouldn't be, if you want, are trapped in some kind of cycle and, and, and they need to find an artificial way of usurping nature and tapping into a form of our artificial immortality and they're dragging us along for the ride, whereas we already have that if we just choose to transcend the so-called physical reality that we currently are experiencing. Right, and that's why it's an easy fix. Uh, all you have to do is change your mind. Powerful words, and I know you're slightly caught for time, Tom. I would like details on the book, which is called The Contagion Myth, Why Viruses, Including Coronavirus, Are Not the Cause of Disease. I've read the book twice, actually, it's absolutely explosive. It's an incredibly easy read, which I didn't expect. It reads almost like a novel. There's a really nice narrative to it. And as a medical layman, such as I am, it was surprisingly enjoyable. It's extremely enjoyable, but I thought it would be a medical textbook. It's far from it, despite the fact that everything is so well researched and referenced. There's a bit of controversy around the supply of this book when it was released. I found it very difficult to get initially, Tom, because it disappeared almost overnight from Amazon. So how can people get their hands on it? Uh, I, I don't actually know in Europe or Ireland. Um, I know in the United States, uh, Barnes and Noble and Simon and Schuster and uh, the Dr. Tom website, we all have it. I, I know Sally knows where you can get it in England. There are some places. I think probably if you just put it in some search engine, you'll probably find it. But you, you may actually look into that and tell people where they can find it. In the UK and Europe, Blackwell's is the first port of yeah, call. That's where I got the book. I'll get the links up on our website, of course, so people yeah, can access it. Um, but I, I would see it personally as a huge vote of confidence, the fact that the book was banned on Amazon so quickly because what's in it, as I said, is absolutely explosive. And the way the message is delivered is second to none. And I really like how not just... The facts are delivered, but there is a philosophical slant, which has very much come through in this conversation with you uh, today, Tom, as well. And I really appreciate not just your vision, not just your expertise, but the fact that you have such a positive outlook on what can be done and you're so solutions based. And I suppose that's what you've been doing in your professional career, haven't you? 
I mean, I had to be successful or, or nobody would come. And if, if I wasn't successful, I would have told them not to come because I wouldn't come either. Uh, so I had to figure out what works. And so that's been a big part of my life. Well, we've got a doctor with a conscience. Before I let you go, I have one question. It's just something I've been dying to ask. Are doctors, do you think, turning a blind eye deliberately? Or are they just under the spell as well? Under the spell. Okay, okay. Well, they, they, you know, all I can say is when I graduated medical school and the residency, I knew nothing about any of this stuff. So they're, they're basically a combination of ignorant and under the spell. The website is drtomcowan.com. I highly recommend Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. It's a wonderful watch and a wonderful listen. The book, again, is The Contagion Myth, and I think it's essential reading. Personally speaking, this is what I would have people reading in schools rather than a lot of the nonsense that goes on. Have you any final thoughts for the listeners, Tom? Yeah, I don't like school either, so I'd rather they read it outside of school. <laughs> Even better again. Listen, I hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you so much for joining me on Alchemy. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Dr. Thomas S. Cowan, thank you for joining me on the show. Okay, thank you. Alchemy, alchemy, alchemy. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Thank you so much for listening and for all your kind messages. I'm hoping to get many more shows in the not-so-distant, in fact, in the near future. And if you would like to donate to help the cause, so to speak, you can do so. The links are on our website. And even the smallest donation is greatly appreciated. Everything goes back into the show. It's completely non-profit. And I intend to stay that way. It's a labor of love. This is certainly not for money. Until the next time, I have the power. You have the power. We have the power.
Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination. Are you children? 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 Are you